Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Chloe Hooper in conversation with Richard Feidler about his new release, The Book of Roads and Kingdoms. This book covers the story of medieval wanderers who travelled out to the edges of the known world during Islam's fabled Golden Age, an era when the caliphs of Baghdad presided over a dominion greater than the Roman Empire at its peak, stretching from North Africa to India. Imperial Baghdad, founded as the City of Peace, quickly became the biggest and richest metropolis in the world. Feidler weaves together vignettes of a dazzling lost world, imparting the story of an empire's rise and utterly devastating fall. I hosted Richard Feidler and Chloe Hooper at Readings Carlton, and I do hope you find their conversation as engaging and as fascinating as I did on the night. Here it is. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings Carlton. It's really good to have you all here tonight to celebrate the release of this new book. I won't introduce uh, the author just here, but before I introduce our other guest for the night, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that this is sovereign land. This is Kulin country here. The traditional custodians of this land are Wurundjeri and Wurrung people, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders of the past, those with us here now and those who will come in the future. If there are any First Nations people here with us tonight, also I'd like to acknowledge your presence and hope that the work that we do here can lead to a better future of truth-telling, reconciliation and a better future. Uh, so thank you. I'm very happy to be a part of this event. It's a subject of great importance and personal relevance to me and my family. And speaking of importance and relevance, we're very, very lucky to have helping to release this book. There's a wonderful, wonderful author, Chloe Hooper. Chloe has written what is actually one of my favourite books that I studied while I was at university, The Tall Man, which really changed my view of narrative non-fiction and of investigative work. Chloe's other books, like The Arsonist, covered something that was also close to my family and personal history. And Chloe's most recent book, Bedtime Story, is a very, very touching, powerful work, one that I think we don't come across the calibre of it very often. So we're in very, very solid storytelling hands here tonight to examine this other book here. And I'd like to ask you all to give a big round of applause to both of our guests, and thank you for coming through. Thanks for such a warm welcome, Nico, and readings, and everyone for for coming out on a, you know, a dreary night where we're going to have a fun time. We will have fun time on this dreary night. We're going to say all kinds of defamatory things here. (laughs) It's going to be wild here. All of us, we're going to encourage you to all get stuck in. It'll be wonderful. Absolutely. All right. And I I feel like there should be some sort of requisite cheesy joke. There must be. Whenever anybody interviews you, there must be some sort of like, oh, the tables are turned now. Uh, Now, Mr. (laughs) Feidler, you will wilt before my penetrating wall of questions. I shall tease you until you cry tonight. Yes, that does happen. Okay. (laughs) Do you, do you sort of, do you hate being interviewed? I love it. I absolutely Finally, love it. Finally, like, someone's asking me a question. Yes, yes, it's exactly like that. I, I do so much interviewing. And it takes, as you know, so much more work. I mean, the work when you're being interviewed is done in the writing of the book, which takes two years, and that is a lot of work. But then it's done, and then you can talk about it. And then you have, I mean, as an interviewer, I really try and keep my mouth shut most of the time to let the person I'm interviewing talk and explain themselves fully without... Stepping on them. I, I did an interview with Angela Lansbury, which I repeated uh, after her death recently. And I, in my research, I found it, she had never been properly interviewed. She'd been interviewed by Larry King, who talked for longer than she did in the course of the interview. 
boring dude in braces, you are not as interesting as Angela Lansbury. So, mm. so yes, I believe normally as an interviewer, I keep stumm as much as I can, but now I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> Off the chain, people, yes. Did Angela say, finally, someone's interviewed me properly <laughs> yeah, at the end of the she interview? She did, actually. <laughs> that was really nice of her to say that. She actually, she was really lovely. She was quite teary at the end with her. Mm, okay. All right, well, let's see what we can do today. Um, I did wonder where we should start, Richard, because the book begins in 323 BCE and it really takes us through to 2022 when you're, you're in the British Museum. But I actually wanted to, I wanted to do a Richard Feidler kind of move and ask you about this inscription. Yes, I've dedicated the book to my father and the wall of books in the living room. History um, books in history the living books, room. History books, I should say, more specifically. I'm the child of two people who were working class country people. Uh, my mum was from South Australia, Kadena, and my dad spent much of his childhood in Gippsland. My mum my had a very happy childhood, my father did not. My father's childhood was one of kind of deprivation and, and a lot of cruelty. And he was a rough as guts kid living in the country for a long while until he joined the Air Force at the fag end of World War II, and that, he said, saved his life. Because joining the Air Force meant he was straight away taken out of this raw, rough-as-guts upbringing into the company of Air Force Bohemians. Like, he's suddenly hanging around with men who are growing flim moustaches, smoking pipes, reading Sartre, drinking cheap wine and commenting on the tasting notes in it. And, and he straight away felt like he'd been civilised by his time in the Air Force. And he became a kind of a bohemian. Affected wearing an Errol Flynn moustache himself, smoked a pipe for a little while anyway, and started becoming a big, big, big reader. Both my parents, like a lot of working class people, very big readers and believed in the power of redemption, redemptory power of education and reading to lift them up. And as a child, my dad was a total autodidact. He was a history, mad for history, absolutely mad for it. And we had a big wall, sort of like a shelf like that, full of history books at home. Well, mum's fiction books. Mum was a big fiction reader. Dad was the non-fiction reader. The wall of history books, though, was something that intrigued me as a kid because I thought as I grew up, if I could understand what was in them, I'd sort of be privy to the secrets of life, death, the universe and everything. And Dad loved history. I've loved history. Every time I asked him a question about history, he always, always gave me his best answer. And I look back upon that with such fondness. And I've tried to do that with my own kids, particularly my son who loves history. And I've tried to always give them my best answer when they've asked me questions. And I think very fondly about that. I'm very sorry my old man is no longer with us. He died about 10 years ago. I would have loved to him to see these great big beautiful hardback books that HarperCollins has produced of my works on the shelf for his own enjoyment. Thank you for that. So this is a beautiful book and it's, and it's beautiful inside and out. You talk about starting the book at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So when everyone was, you know, as you put it, confined to quarters and your travel plans, like everyone else's on the planets, were abruptly cancelled. And instead you've sort of, you've undertaken this other extraordinary form of travel. Yes, I'm thinking of that song by the Waterboys, The Hole of the Moon, you know. I travelled out in the world for a year, but you just stayed in your room and I, I could only stay in my room during COVID, as we all did. I had plans to write another book entirely, which would have required me to travel and do what I normally do, which is to go to a place or have already been to a place, have some kind of an adventure and write a history around that place while I'm there. But I couldn't travel anywhere. 
So I started following travellers instead and I thought I'll go back to the Vikings maybe and went looking for stories of the Vikings who went to Eastern Europe and to Russia, uh, who traded furs along Russia's river system in the early Middle Ages. And I found an account of a group of Vikings on the Volga River, written by an Arabic diplomat by the name of Ibn Fadlan, who was sent out by his caliph, al-Muqtadir, to strike a deal with a distant kingdom on the Volga River in southern Russia, near the city of Kazan. He was prepared to accept the sovereignty of the caliph in Baghdad in return for money for which he could build a mosque and a fort. And so Ibn Fadlan was sent out on this expedition, heading out of Baghdad, up north, north, north. And it turns into a kind of a heart of darkness story pretty quickly. Ibn Fadlan was a urbane, cosmopolitan dweller of the biggest and richest city in the world, which was Baghdad in those days who is sent out of there, right out of where everything he's known, into the Badlands, some of the most arid and dangerous places in the world, up, up past the Caucasus, up past the Caspian Sea, where he nearly froze to death. And being, he was a slightly prissy guy as well. So he's just, everywhere he goes through this area, he's forced to accept the hospitality of Turkish nomads and herdsmen who offer him every hospitality. But then but they also <laughs> want to keep him wherever he, wherever he goes. He seems to be entrapped. They do. It was like The, the Hobbit. It was. Where <laughs> Bilbo Baggins is sort of, you know, captured once, you know, over and over again. They get captured, they get waylaid, and the whole time he's going, in his account, he's going, oh, my God, these people, they, they're such bogans, essentially, is what he has to say about these people who look after him from place to place. There's a wonderful moment when he, he's, he's with the Osteo-Turks. He's taken into a yurt by a tribesman and his wife, and they're talking, and just apropos to nothing at all, this guy's wife pulls apart her skirts, exposing her groin, and just starts scratching at it right in front of him, completely naked, exposed groin, just scratching at it. And all him and Fanlan says, all I could do was bury my face in my hands and go, oh my God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, like that. So despite his prissiness, I came to quite like him. (laughs) Because I kind of, you know, I think we'd all be a bit like that, I think, going out into the wilds of the world like that. And when they finally arrive there, it all goes horribly wrong. He's held hostage by the king. And then he has something like a a nervous breakdown, I think, while he's up in that region of the world. He he starts seeing jinn fighting in the sky. And what was that? I don't know. The aurora borealis. Uh, He sees the bones of a giant. The local king says, oh, yeah, we had a giant who came in from Gog and Magog and we had to hang him from a tree and I'll show you his bones. And he sees these giant bones and... I mean, his translators wonder if that, what was that, a mastodon maybe? A thawed mastodon or a bear or something? And then this party of Vikings arrive. Yeah, now then, it, then it's wake and fright. Then it's wake and fright. It's totally wake and fright. Mm. It becomes a very, very strange moment. His voice, uh, you say it appeals to you because yeah. it was so... Contemporary. It, yeah. Absolutely. Se- well, seemingly contemporary. He is from a, deep, a great civilization. He feels he's very much out of his depth. I, I kind of get his panic. And the description he has of a terrible, terrible sacrifice that takes place, the Viking sacrifice of a slave girl to follow her master, a dead chieftain, who dies while he's there, is one of the most harrowing things I've ever read in any historical document at any time. It's really, really, um, it was, it it really um, chilled me to the bone to read it. It was a, a moment so impregnated with magic and sex and blood and horror and delirium that I think the people who witnessed it or participated in this rite 
of the sacrifice of the slave girl were pushed out to the very furthest realms of human existence, I think. And after this, I thought, I don't want to write about the Vikings anymore. I want to write more about people like Ibn Fadlan. And so I thought, are there more such travellers' tales? And God, what a dumb question. Oh, my God. There's a trove of these stories of Muslim travellers leaving Baghdad over centuries, going out to the furthest edges of the world and coming back with these amazing accounts of the, their adventures, exploits, the things they saw and did out there. And suddenly I, I, I realised there was this wealth of material and if you patched it together, you could create a kind of a map of the whole known world as it was in the early Middle Ages. Will you read to us a little bit about one of the palaces that some of your travellers were were setting out from. And I, I, there's, a, there's a wonderful line from the Quran too uh, that I loved in the book, which gives a sense of setting out. God has made an earth for you as a carpet spread out so that you may roam its broad roads. Yeah, so, it's lovely, isn't it? I have on the back of this book a phrase, go about the earth and look. This is an often repeated phrase in the Quran, an injunction to travel. Go about the earth and look, see, go and find out. Go to these places, see what's there. And one of the most famous sayings of the Prophet Muhammad was him telling his followers, seek knowledge even as far as China. So uh, this passage I'm about to read is a description of Baghdad at its kind of height of its beauty and power under the reign of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who people here read The Thousand and One Nights, uh, you know, Scheherazade's spinning tales. Harun al-Rashid appears again and again in those stories. It's, It's often like late at night. They begin late at night in the palace, this palace I'm about to describe. It's too hot to sleep. Harun al-Rashid, the caliph, says, I'm bored. And he and his friends dress incognito and go into the city and they encounter a mystery or an adventure. So he's throughout the Thousand and One Nights, but he was a real historical character. And this is a portrait I sketched of him in Baghdad, the city of peace. Harun al-Rashid, tall, good-looking and slim, with wavy hair and olive skin, presided over an empire that stretched from North Africa to India. The English poet Tennyson would later fantasise about the golden prime of good Harun al-Rashid, and even in Harun's own time, Muslims could feel the sunshine of God's goodwill on their faces. Did you not see how the sun came out of hiding on Harun's accession and flooded the world with light? Asked one giddy poet. Harun al-Rashid was, in all likelihood, the wealthiest man who ever lived, and spent his riches freely. On his wedding day, he handed out fistfuls of gold and silver coins to people from all over his realm, while his servants distributed brocaded gowns and scented oils from large glass bowls. To his wife, Zubaydah, he gave an ornate sleeveless jacket studded with oversized rubies and pearls. So great were the splendours and riches of his reign, wrote the scholar and traveller Masudi. Such was its prosperity that this period has been called the honeymoon. When Harun came to the throne, Baghdad had become the first medieval city to pass the population threshold of a million people. In the new districts of Rusafa, Shamasia and Mukharim on the east bank of the Tigris, princes, courtiers and merchants built palaces and mansions that outshone the grandeur of the original Golden Gate Palace in the Round City. While in Baghdad, Harun preferred to dwell in the Casa al-Kuld, the Palace of Eternity, overlooking the Tigris, and so named for its gardens, which were said to rival those in paradise. Here, the Caliph could find some respite 
from the heat of the day and the pressures of court life, sitting in the shaded pavilions of an immense flowered pleasure garden, surrounded by waterfalls and trees, with precious gems studded into their trunks. The palace interiors facing the gardens had been decorated to subtly correspond with the colours blooming outside. One visitor later recalled entering an audience hall carpeted with pink fabric and attended by servants in matching pink silks, which looked out over the treetops of a garden that had burst into leaf with roses and peach and apple blossoms. Don't you want to live in that little bit of real estate, just quietly? I can see why you had a better lockdown than, than some people. Oh, yeah. Well, these people kept me company. I found these, these amazing writers and, and people like Masudi I mentioned there. It was so charming and, and interesting and travelled everywhere and did everything and, and wrote accounts of their travels but also of court politics that were chatty and gossipy and they were such good company. And I'm so grateful to have been able to read them during lockdown and keep me company in, when we couldn't go out and see each other. I was really struck by the idea that actually a lot of these writers were also sent out to sort of the far, far reaches of the empire as diplomats. Mm. And I thought, why don't, I, why don't someone, someone send me off to like right. a, a plum ambassadorship? Yes, you know? you to the, send you out to the Ustjurt Plateau with the tribes out there and see how you get on, Chloe. But no, but really, <laughs> I mean, writers uh, often could make... We're not being used as, as widely as we could be. Indeed, and in Baghdad of this period that I'm describing here, I'm not kidding, the highest paid professionals in Baghdad were translators and poets, mm. not hedge fund managers... Mm. Translators and poets. Then when politicians are writing to each other, threatening each other, I mean, it does feel as though they have had a poet has sort of worked over their lines, even in the, we're going to come and kill you all. Indeed. That's part of the Bedouin <laughs> tradition. They were like the Vikings in that sense, that the two most honoured professions in Bedouin Arabic society, as it was with the Vikings, was that of warrior and poet. If you could be a warrior, well and good. If you could be a poet, even better. The skill with words was admired even more than skill with the sword or the scimitar. And for a long while, these poets in the Hijaz, in the desert areas of Arabia, were seen as the custodians of the culture. They were the kind of Netflix of their day. I mean, you're sitting around under the stars, around a fire at night, and you'd listen to these poets tell stories, recount the history with sly and brilliant word forms that made people sparkle and feel completely alive on the desert sands under the stars. How completely beautiful. This is why they were revered. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I really loved in the book the, the Travels of Gazelle, the poet. Will you tell us a little bit about, sure. about yeah, the gazelle? Al-Ghazal, the gazelle, uh, was a famously handsome and charming poet who lived in Cordoba in the 9th century, I think, or 10th, just off the top of my head. Famously good-looking, charming. Got even more handsome as he got older in that way, that annoying way that some men can. And he was sent on a mission after a group of Vikings came raiding down the west coast of France and then Spain, creating all kinds of havoc. They then went down past Gibraltar and then up into the Guadalquivir River up towards Cordoba. And that's when the emir of Cordoba, the Muslim ruler there, 
took a stand, brought out his highly professional army and they just kicked the shit out of the Vikings totally and utterly in a way you hardly ever see described in Viking history to the point where they begged for mercy and said, we'll hand you over all of our looted treasure and all of our slaves if you just let us leave in peace. And according to this uh, court record, uh, sometime after this, the king of the Vikings, he's just called the king of the Vikings, sent an emissary to the emir of Cordoba saying, send one of your people and we will negotiate a truce. So there's an account of the gazelle who's given the job by the emir to go north up to the land of the Vikings, whatever that is, and make this truce. And it's not exactly clear where he goes, but the description of where he goes does seem to be Denmark. It seems to be the island of Sealand, off the mainland of Denmark. And if so, it would have been King Horik of the Vikings, who appears in the TV series Vikings, the character as a character. And the account says that it was very important for Muslim diplomats at the time not to kneel or bow or make obeisance to a ruler because Muslims thought that was idolatry and there is no God but God. And it's blasphemous to do that to and treat an emperor like a god or a king like a god. So it was made clear before his arrival that the gazelle would not kneel or bow or kowtow to the emperor. I do love the way, Richard, that there is a feeling of a thousand and one nights. There are these stories within stories and there are sort of it, it keeps opening up in unexpected ways. So he arrives in the land of the king of the Vikings with his companions, Al Ghazal. The visitors were given a fine dwelling and after two days were summoned to appear before the king. As he had on his visit to Constantinople, Ghazal had made it clear he would not bend the knee, nor would he do anything else that might contradict his religion. The king had apparently agreed to this, but when Ghazal came to meet with King Horik, he saw that the king's men had built the doorway so low <laughs> that he would be forced to crawl through on his knees. The gazelle, however, was unperturbed. When he came to the entrance, he simply sat down, stretched his legs and slid his way in feet first. The king and his court were amused and impressed. We sought to humiliate him, laughed King Horik, and he greeted us with the soles of his shoes. Isn't that terrific? Isn't that great? I just love that story. This is different from your day job, or is it? What are the skills that you bring as an interviewer, does it sort of actually transfer to looking through the details of, of these ancient stories? I, I like to think so. I think I, I, have to, I have to be a quick reader in my job. I have to read two or three books a week very often and read very, very quickly, too quickly actually. I think it's kind of ruined my reading habits for, for a while and I'll have to learn to slow down again. But I'm, I'm gouging away at the text <laughs> to find the bits uh, that can work to form a narrative frame for a radio interview. The, my radio program is an hour long and it's just a single guest. And radio is different from a book though because it's, it's very powerful. It has a lot of narrative energy, but it's a single track. Like, unlike a book, you can't flip backwards in a radio story of someone's life to go, oh, what was that person again? Let's just go back a bit. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. It's, so you've got to put these things together in such a way that they work along that single railroad track. You know how it is when you're, when you're doing your research, Chloe. You, you look for that really piquant detail for those things, that you, a word uh, as you're going through the source material where you go, oh, that's, what's that? That's interesting, what that person just said there or what's been described there. And you follow it. It often opens the door to all kinds of things. And I think I need to think structurally to create a proper interview to set it up so I can guide the guest through it from 
through the narrative arc. There's always, of course, the thing with narrative history is it's always misleading. I mean, this is presenting a whole history of an empire as this great narrative arc and then plotted on points of a compass. But, of course, history doesn't ever quite unfold that way. It unfolds in all different directions at once. The borders are very messy. I mean, we like to think that the Western Roman Empire ended in the year 476 when young Romulus Augustulus was kicked off his throne and wandered off into the distance and a German king took over. But no, 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 the empire had been falling for a good century before that and continued to collapse afterwards. So there's never any neat lines, but you have to give some structure to give the, narr the history some narrative energy. And I think I always like to hint that this is being told as a story. And again, I find I bring that to structuring an interview with a radio guest. I really understand what you mean when you when you suddenly come across some sort of piquant detail and the idea that it was, you know, sometimes when you're writing something, when I'm writing something, I think, who is this for? And and, and, and the answer can be, well, maybe someone will take it off a shelf in, in however many years' time and it will mean something to them. And They might get the same piquant details that yeah, you pass and, on. And, mm. and, and you found these details in, in manuscripts that are centuries old. It's an incredible thing that the palaces and the communities and religious groups sometimes that you're describing, I mean, there are cities of 200,000 that are suddenly turned to ruin. The accidents of war and history that suddenly just erode these towns and the impermanence. And it's incredible that the documents that you found exist. Impermanence is a theme that runs throughout this whole book. Yes. It's accompanied by the Alexander the Great falls outside this timeline entirely. He appears again and again in this book, haunting the imaginations of major figures throughout this era. Alexander had led that life where he'd conquered half the known world uh, and died in his 30s. In the eyes of many men, particularly, had, had created this standard that no one felt that they could ever match. So at the end of the lives of so many people in this book, they feel this terrible sense of futility in their own lives. And the, one of the most interesting philosophers I discovered was a, a man who's kind of well-known called Ibn Khaldun. And he was one of the most influential philosophers of all time. He influenced Isaac Asimov in the writing of the Foundation series of science fiction novels. He influenced Arnold Toynbee. He influenced Frank Herbert in the writing of Dune. He had this theory that, the phrase he created, he called it asabiya, an Arabic word that means group feeling. He said, what happens is this, you have the squabbling Arabs, the feuding tribes who are of no greater political consequence, then the asabiya, the fellow feeling, doesn't extend beyond the, the family. Then a figure like Muhammad appears and unites all of the tribes and the Asabiya is radically extended to this great big group and all this energy is unlocked as a result and bang, the Arabs come charging out and take half the decrepit Roman Empire and take all of Sassanid Persia, all of it, and end up with the biggest empire the world has ever known. These flinty desert warriors come out of nowhere and suddenly the whole world is theirs. And clearly, what do they conclude? This new faith they have is, is right. It's correct. God is smiling on their efforts. God believes they've got it all right. It's completely working for them. They have, dare I say it, a sense of manifest destiny, that the world is theirs to own. This despised and marginal people suddenly become imperialists. 
confident that they have it right. Like the British in the 19th century, the Americans in the 20th century, we've got it right. God is smiling on our efforts. It's our absolute destiny to run the world. Mm. And we go out and about and do it. But then uh, Ibn Khaldun says, the Asabiyah, well, you can build a kingdom and that helps extend the Asabiyah for a little while. The group feeling stays intact. But then after a while, everyone gets rich. The king finds he needs to hire mercenaries because he no longer has these tough guy, hardened, Bedouin warriors anymore. Then the mercenaries hold the king to ransom and then the whole thing falls in a heap when a new group of desert warriors or Vikings or whatever, a bunch of tough guys come out of nowhere and then they, the whole cycle starts all over again. And he's writing after the fall of the Abbasid Empire so this sense of futility pervades his work. Early on in the Abbasid Empire, they have write wonderful books like the Book of Roads and Kingdoms. I've taken this from uh, the title of one of the great geographies at the time, or Al-Masudi's wonderful book called Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems, or another book called The Book of Gifts and Rarities. You can hear the joyfulness, the optimism in the titles of those books, but by the time the empire falls, there's so much pessimism and this sense of futility that I found completely fascinating. But also contemporary. I mean, I was wondering what you, as you were reading this, you must have been thinking about the geopolitics of... Today, absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking about the United States all the time. That sense of confidence of going out into the world absolutely. that the Americans are, is faltering yeah. amongst the Americans. The, the whole democratic project, the Asabiya is definitely gone mm. from the United States. It's, it's riven by conflict. The whole democratic project is losing altitude in the United States. It feels like a strange time. And I kept reflecting on the United States and, of course, on the British Empire as well. All those glad, confident documents, uh, the poems by Kipling yeah. that are 100 years old. And look at Britain now. Hey? Look at it now. This is the fate of all, uh, the ultimate fate of all these human endeavours, I suppose. But... Man, it's worth it. I still think it's worth it. The, the, to remember the glittering civilization of Imperial Baghdad is a fine thing. What was achieved there was extraordinary. Can you tell us a little bit about following some of the threads of the book through to the British Museum in 2022? Yeah, this is a bit of a long story. Should I, I, it's, a, it's, it's a fun one, though. This is the most fun part of the book to write. It's interesting in terms of impermanence. Yeah, it is. And it begins, this story begins in 832. The caliph was a man by the name of Al-Watiq and he'd had a bad dream, he'd had a nightmare. He'd had, he woke after this dream where he'd seen the wall of Gog and Magog, which was thought to exist in the far northeast of the world, the bad lands of the world. He'd had a dream that it had collapsed and all the unholy apocalypse beasts that lay behind it were about to come through and run over the holy cities of the world and that would bring on the apocalypse, the end of the world. Now, if a caliph has a dream like that, it might be considered uh, a prophecy or an omen of some kind, and he took it very seriously. And according to one of the accounts by a man named Salam the Interpreter, Salam was appointed to head an expedition to go east to find the wall of Gog and Magog and see if it was still intact. Now, the existence of this wall was just commonly acknowledged in the Middle Ages by Muslims, Christians and Jews, and the story of its construction is in the Quran. A great heroic warrior who is Alexander the Great, but he's called the Two-Horned One in the Quran, comes out to the badlands of the northeast where all the terrible things happen and they meet some villagers who say, we're being attacked by the hordes of Gog and Magog. So he builds, he builds this gigantic metal wall out of metal bricks between two mountains that pens them all in. But he leaves making a prophecy that one day the wall will come down and that'll be the end of it. That'll be the end of the world. So 
This expedition goes to the northeast to look for the wall of Gog and Magog. And Salam the interpreter went out and came back and he wrote this account. And first, you can start to trace the voyage without too much trouble to begin with. He says, we went out through Iran. We went past the, through the city of Ray near modern-day Tehran. We went up city of Tiflis. We know it as Tbilisi in Georgia today. Then the account gets a little vague and metaphorical. He says, then we entered a black and putrid land, a black foul-smelling land. We passed through there and entered a wasteland with ruined cities that had been devastated by the monsters of Gog and Magog. And they go on and on, they pass through garrisons and then they arrive at a distant city called Igu. And after there it's a day's march to the wall and they find the wall of Gog and Magog, he says. And Salam says it's just like it is in the Quran. It's this vast wall made out of metal bricks. We saw the cauldrons left there by Alexander the Great's Workmen, there's some garrisons there. They go out three times a week to check the state of the wall to make sure the monsters are still behind. They ride out with big hammers. They go clang, clang, clang on the metal wall. And if they hear the sound of from behind it, they know it's all good because the monsters are still there and stuck there. And this is what happens. Salam is thrilled. He scrapes off some iron filings and goes back to the caliph and presents the filings as proof it's all fine. Now, for a long while, this was thought to have been just one of those charming wonder tales come out of the Arab world every once in a while, a kind of Aladdin. Uh, and there's all, right. it does have a feeling of, doesn't it, of like, oh, shit, what are we going to tell What are we going to tell the caliph? Yeah, but you can, you can track an itinerary. You can. Tiflis is there on the map. We know that, Tbilisi. If you go north of Tbilisi, you run into the Karakum Desert. Karakum means black sands. I like the way that it seems as you you are the one who has mapped this. I have mapped it. I, I not per, not in person, but I I studied Google Maps so closely yeah. and so intensely. And I've spoken to friends who've been through the Karakum Desert who described it to me. And it, it's famous for its black shale sands and also for its substantial methane deposits, a black and putrid land. So many methane deposits. There's so many methane deposits there. The Soviets built a huge gas platform there in the 1970s. And thanks to the wonders of Soviet engineering, the whole thing just fell into the hole in the mid-1970s. And so the Soviet engineers went, well, that's a bit of a disaster. Let's just burn off the excess gas and walk away. They set fire to the gas. It's still burning today, 50 years later. It's known as the gateway to hell in Uzbekistan and it's a tourist attraction. That's my theory anyway. Then he goes into, beyond there, into this wasteland. Now, out of the Karakum Desert, you go over the Pamir Mountains and you arrive at the Chinese city of Kashgar, the westernmost city of China, which is the leaping off point into the Taklamakan Desert, one of the most inhospitable regions in the world. The Silk Roads bifurcated at this point, going north and south around this I-shaped desert. Marco Polo wrote about this desert and the dangers for travellers. Famously has hallucinogenic power over travellers that go through it. And in the middle of the Taklamakan, there are these lost, buried Buddhist cities. We know this, they're still there today. A great many of them are still buried under the desert sands. Cities that were built, filled with temples of statues and cave frescoes of incredible beauty. But the streams that were feeding them were diverted or they dried up, the cities became uninhabitable and they left. So there are these ghost cities in the middle of the Taklamakan Desert. And then I pick up the story in the early 20th century with a British-Hungarian explorer, archaeologist, called Sir Mark Oral Stein. Oral Stein was going through there to unearth some of these lost cities and to take artefacts from them back to Britain. 
And along the way, he coming out of the Taklamakan with these, you know, this, this wagon loads of stolen stuff, effectively, he saw like these heaps, matted heaps of luwai weeds that stack right up high, and then a watchtower. And then from another perspective, you could see another watchtower in the distance and another one beyond there. And then there was this great big stone bunker. And then he realised he'd arrived at the westernmost reaches of the Great Wall of China, the Han Great Wall. Is this the wall of Gog and Magog that Salam the Interpreter found? We can't prove it. Maybe, maybe not, but it's kind of fun to think so. It looks nothing like the gigantic wall of metal bricks described. But, you know, what's he going to do when he comes home, as you say to the caliph? Oh, no, it looks like nothing at all in the Quran, commander of the faithful. No, he's going to say it's just like it was back there. But from there, I followed Oral Stein's story. And he went nearby to a, the, the nearby city from Imu or Yigu or Hami as it is today is the Chinese city of Dunhuang, uh, which people here might have heard of. It has these famous Buddhist caves, the Thousand Buddha Caves. It's the greatest repository of Buddhist art and sculpture in the world. And a lot of these American and British and French and Russian and German and, and, ja and Japanese archaeologists came through the area, took away huge amounts of stuff. One of them was an American archaeologist whom Steven Spielberg based Indiana Jones on, a man named Langdon Warner who arrived and saw that these beautiful Buddhist frescoes were being defaced by Russians, Russian soldiers coming through the area, and by outraged Muslims who disliked seeing the human form represented. And so he peeled off a dozen or so of these frescoes from the cave wall using a special solution. He botched several attempts, leaving disfigured cave frescoes behind. The ones he was able to take are now in the Fog Museum at Harvard, where they hang today. But by God, you know, to do such a thing, I think they would have been better off taking their chances in the cave, those beautiful frescoes. Dunhuang, I remember, I've heard of Dunhuang. I heard about it at a dinner in, in Beijing about five, six years ago. I was at a dinner in Beijing there for an academic conference where I was hosting a panel discussion. And at the table was Edmund Capon, the former director of the Gallery of New South Wales, who loved Chinese art, Buddhist art, all his life. When he got appointed to the job, he was living in London, and just before he left London, he, he told us that he went to a party, and at that party was Sidney Nolan, you know, famous for his Ned Kelly paintings, of course. And they both got talking about Dunhuang, both obsessed with Dunhuang, both obsessed with the Buddhist art that was in there, and they made a bet that the first one of them, Edmund or Sydney, to get to Dunhuang would go to a specific cave which has a gigantic 35-metre-high statue of a Maitreya Buddha and would write some kind of little market on the plinth to indicate that they'd been there. So it took Edmund Capon another four years before he could get into China. It was still recovering from the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution. 1983, he, he said, I finally got to Dunhuang on the back of a donkey cart or something, I think. He gets there, he's got permission to get into the cave and he says to himself, I've beaten Sid, I've beaten Sid. There it is, the Maitreya Buddha, 35 metres high, magnificent, oh my God, it's so sublime. And he walks around to the back of the plinth and it's covered in tourist graffiti from Chinese tourists. And there, in the upper left-hand corner, he sees a tiny Ned Kelly. <laughs> so, from this cave network, there was a library behind. Oh, yes. And you went to the museum and read 
from the Diamond Sutra, which is a lesson about impermanence. And, and Richard, it does feel that, like your book, this is about abandoning preconceived notions of reality and understanding that nothing exists independently of other things, that nothing is entirely the thing it's called and that all things are in constant transition from one state to another. Nothing is fixed or stable. Thank you. I mean, I, I, to quote the Water Boys, we saw the crescent, you saw the whole of the moon. <laughs> and uh, this is just such a stunning book. Thank you very much, Chloe. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, Chloe. I think we might leave there for the formal part of the event tonight. Thank you for that really fascinating conversation and for the anecdotes and the stories and the tales. I'm sure there's plenty, plenty more in this wonderful little book. Thank you both for coming through and for speaking. And, and thank you as well, Chloe Hooper, who I have enormous regard for as a major, one of our most important writers in Australia today. Thank you so much, Chloe. This is very kind of you. Yeah, big round of applause for both our guests. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you. <laughs>